I'm Amanda Olberg, Managing Editor of Education Next. We invite you to join this week's Education Next podcast, available online Wednesday morning each week at educationnext.org. On January 11th, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments in the most important special education case in 35 years, Andrew F. v. Douglas County School District. At issue was the level of services federal law requires school districts to provide to students with disabilities. Must districts merely ensure that students receive some educational benefit, however trivial it may be, or do they need to meet a higher standard? How the justices answer that question could have big implications for the more than 6 million students nationwide currently enrolled in special education. I'm Marty West, Editor-in-Chief of Education Next, and I'm joined today by Josh Dunn, an Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs, and the Legal Beat columnist for Education Next. His piece on the Andrew F. case will appear in the summer 2017 issue of the journal and is available now at educationnext.org. Josh, welcome to the EdNext podcast. Great. Thanks for having me. So this is a complicated area of law, one that at least temporarily tripped up our incoming Secretary of Education at her confirmation hearing. And the justices seemed quite conflicted about how to resolve the issue raised by this case. So there's a lot we'll have to unpack, but let's start with the facts. Who is Andrew F., and what are his parents seeking from the court? So Andrew F. is uh, now a 17-year-old teenager in Douglas County, Colorado, just up the road from me. Uh, He was diagnosed with autism at a very young age, I believe two years, uh, when he was two years old, and then also attention deficit disorder shortly after that. He started in the public schools in Douglas County, uh, and uh, evidently his first few years in the schools were okay. He was making some progress. Uh, but then his uh, fourth grade year, uh, things did not go well for him. He had increasing behavioral issues. Um, and if you read about some of, some of the issues, they, re- they really were kind of uh, uh, shocking even. And it's, uh, if you think about it, it might be difficult for any, any school that's not dedicated to, to students just like him to actually be able to, to teach him effectively. He was doing things like tearing off his clothes in, in class, climbing over other students, um, urinating in the middle of the classroom, things, things like that. So it was not, it was not uh, a good year for him. And so his parents, because they were dissatisfied with his individualized education plan, which he is entitled to under, under the law, uh, he's supposed to be able to receive a free and appropriate uh, public education. They said that he was not receiving that. They took him out of uh, the, the public schools and then enrolled him in a, a special school just for uh, students with autism. And uh, based on the record, it looks like he did flourish uh, or do much better in that school than he did in the public, uh, the public schools. Um, and now he's in high school at the same school uh, learning some vocational skills. What the parents want out of the Supreme Court is for the Supreme Court to say that Douglas County has to pay them for their private sc- the cost of private school tuition for, for Andrew. Uh, it, I believe, started at $40,000 a year and now is up to $70,000 a year. And they believe that under the law they're entitled uh, to that. And so really what that would require is the Supreme Court to announce a, a different standard than the one that has, well, most courts, but then some others have uh, adopted different standards. But most lower courts have, have adopted uh, a standard the Supreme Court announced in, in 1982. Uh, which is that you just have to provide some educational benefit for the child under the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act. Those are the basic facts of the case. 
So this was a decision, the Rowley case in 1982, where this language of some educational benefit comes from. I believe the specific language the court used was that the individualized education plan has to be reasonably calculated to enable the child to receive educational benefits. And there's no qualifier on the educational benefits there. And I guess the question is, should there be? Right. So in that case, the, the court did also uh, elsewhere uh, say it just has to provide some educational benefit. So on the on the one hand, you do have the reasonably calculated when they're designing the uh, IEP for the child. Is it reasonably calculated to provide some educational benefit? And then does it provide uh, some educational benefit? Uh, so those are the, the those are kind of two, the, the two parts to it. If you look at the facts of that case, it, it shows you how, why this is such a difficult question for the court. Because in that case, you had a uh, a young girl who was who was deaf. Um, she was capable of hearing some uh, with with a hearing aid. Uh, but at, if you read the facts of it, she evidently was doing quite well in school. Uh, but her parents wanted a a full time sign language interpreter assigned to her in class. But even the sign language interpreter said that she that that wasn't necessary. That she was more than comprehending what was going on in the class. Uh, so unlike Indra F, who really was struggling in school, she seemed to actually be flourishing and. And they had done other things to try and accommodate uh, this this young girl, which which did help her. Um, and so that's that's the difficult judgment for the court. They looked in that case. They saw, well, they're making some some pretty good progress here. So uh, we think that the school district has met its burden under the law. And so they come up with the the some educational benefit standard. And so the question is, can we take that standard and apply it in a useful way to? the situation facing students like Andrew F. And, and his parents. And of course, one of the arguments that Andrew F. and his attorneys and as well the Solicitor General's office uh, for the United States representing one of the last times before the court for the Obama administration, one of the points they made was that the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, the federal law that guarantees a free and appropriate public education to students with disabilities, has been changed since 1982. And in particular, in the last reauthorization in 2004, the Congress made some changes to the language about what an IEP should look like. Is that something that the court's looking at? Certainly. Um, the, I, I, during oral arguments, uh, there were several justices who seemed to, seemed to think that that was very important, the fact that Congress had revisited this and when reauthorizing had included language that placed more emphasis on uh, educational achievements. Um, but if you look at some of the amendments, for instance, 1997, uh, once again, even though you can see more emphasis from Congress on, on showing real improvement in education for the students, it's still going to be difficult to craft, I think, a clear standard out of it. So they said ensuring equality of opportunity, full participation, independent living and economic self-sufficiency for individuals with, with disabilities. So, yeah, that's um, kind of difficult to say what, what a clear standard would be uh, based on that. What exactly does that require school districts to provide to students in a given year, say when they're in the third grade, right? Exactly, exactly. And, and it, it, it seems to me that a lot of the language in IDA currently is focused on whenever possible ensuring that students are provided accommodations that ensure that they can make grade level progress with their peers. And I see even an effort to align the expectations under IDA with the No Child Left Behind Act and now its successor. But I think one of the questions I heard Justice Roberts, the Chief Justice, asking in this case is, what do we do when that concept really isn't useful for evaluating 
the level of services provided to a student who under any reasonable expectation is not going to be making grade level progress. Exactly. In Andrew, uh, unlike the, the young girl in, in Rowley, it's just impossible to imagine him being able to make grade level progress on a consistent basis. Um, there are, you know, of course, unfortunate circumstances where some, some students can't make that kind of progress. So then what are, what are you obligated to provide it? And how much do you have to pay? Uh, some justice, for some justices, that seemed to be a significant concern that, um, while they're sympathetic to, to Andrew, they also recognize that many school districts don't have, um, substantial funds sitting around to be able to pay for, for private school tuition, uh, for, for, for students like Andrew. And so they're worried about how then, uh, if they had to pay for students like him, what, how would that affect other students in, in, in the school district? Uh, so that's, yes, that's, that's also part of the problem with, with cases like Andrew's. Uh, what grade level progress doesn't seem to actually work. And one other thing we should probably clarify is that since Rowley, a lot of the litigation dealing with special education has focused on the process, right? Whether districts complied with the procedural requirements under the IDA that require meetings with parents and, you know, enable them to weigh in on what the student's individualized education plan should look like. There's no question in this case as to whether the district followed the procedural requirements. Is that correct? Well, they, they did raise a procedural complaints, uh, but it, it's clear that that wasn't a very strong part of their uh, part of their complaint. It, the, the Tenth Circuit it, uh, thought that the school district had easily done enough to satisfy the procedural requirements. Of course, there are always going to be occasions where perhaps you could have had more meetings or there could have been a better notification. But all in all, they thought uh, that, the, that the district had done a, a fairly good job at satisfying the procedural requirements. So it really did end up hinging, and I think that's why it was at the Supreme Court. It, it hinges on the substantive component uh, uh, of, the, of the law, uh, which is what standard you have to apply. So, Josh, you're our Supreme Court observer and prognosticator. What did you hear from the justices at oral argument, and what does that lead you to believe as to what we're likely to hear from them later this year? Uh, so my reading of the oral arguments is that I think there, there are probably a majority of the justices would like to see a higher standard, um, or at least they express some sentiment indicating that they would like to see a higher uh, standard than just some some benefit. The problem, though, for them is figuring out what a clear standard would be that wouldn't, then wouldn't just invite even more litigation. Uh, and so because there seem to be some concerns about that, I don't know what will, will happen. Uh, you, you could imagine some of the justices not being willing to, to change the standard just because they don't think that they can craft uh, something that would actually be usable for school districts and, and for lower courts when, when disputes, uh, disputes arise. So um, I, I'm not certain. I, one good example of this, although I'm certain that she will vote for imposing a higher standard, uh, was Justice Sotomayor. Uh, she said that she thought it was clear that the law uh, can, would allow them to, to uh, uh, create a, a higher standard. But then later on she said, I'm not certain that language will allow us to express it, or we don't have the words to actually, actually express it clearly. Um, so we, even from the, the justice, who I think was most supportive of requiring a higher standard, you see some reticence on, uh, on whether or not they could do so in a way that would actually be useful. Yeah, we're used to seeing this Supreme Court divided along ideological lines with 
four justices on one side, four on the other, as it's constituted now. In this case, I heard more internal conflicts among individual justices, I think, as they were trying to wrestle with the issues before them. I think another good example was Justice Breyer, usually one of the liberal members of the court, who clearly was sympathetic with Andrew F., but then said, I foresee taking the money that ought to go to the children and spending it on lawsuits and lawyers and all kinds of things that are extraneous. That's what's actually bothering me. And uh, you just don't know how justices like Breyer will resolve that conflict. Right. Well, Justice Breyer, he, he, there's a part of him which is very suspicious of second-guessing the decisions of uh, school districts uh, and school employees. Uh, and that, that came through in the oral argument as well. Part, part of what he said was, we don't know a lot about education policy. Uh, we aren't experts in what kind of interventions work best for, uh, for kids with disabilities. That was basically the implication of it. And so then we're going to be second-guessing the, the decisions that are made on the ground by people who know more than us. Uh, and you also saw the, the, same, the same spirit in his, uh, his concurring opinion back in the Bong Hits for Jesus case uh, almost a decade ago where he, he just doesn't seem to like the idea of constantly second-guessing uh, uh, public school employees uh, about, about these decisions. And one of the possibilities you raise is that the Supreme Court collectively may ultimately punt on the case. You say they may decide that we, it would be better to rehear this case once they have a replacement for Justice Scalia. How would that work? Right. So it's not unusual for the court to rehear cases. It's probably the most uh, prominent example of this would be Roe versus Wade, um, where they thought it would be better to have a full complement of justices before deciding such a significant issue. So if they get into their deliberations and it's clear that uh, they're just very closely divided or they're just uncertain what to do, you, you could imagine and say, look, we had to, we had to re rehear this case when we have all nine justices so we don't end up with a tie, or maybe it would just be valuable to have uh, on another uh, set of eyeballs on this uh, on this issue. Uh, that might provide some insight for us uh, on the case. Of course, they also might just say that it was the case was improvidently, improvidently granted uh, review or something like that, and then just let the, the Tenth Circuit decision stand. So, yeah, there are a range of possibilities, uh, I, I think, none of which would be surprising um, with, with this case, because you just didn't see really any clarity, I think, coming out of the oral argument, other than that some sentiment that they would like to see a, a higher standard, but they don't have any idea how to do it. Uh, so that makes you think that um, there are many possibilities for what the court could do. Well, that latter possibility that the court could decide not to decide but not agree to rehear the case again would leave a situation where we do have different circuits applying different standards to special education cases, something they usually do like to avoid. Right. And when it comes to rehearing the case later on, of course, that would mean that if President Trump's nominee, Neil Gorsuch, is confirmed that he would be part of the court hearing that case, I was interested to see that he is, of course, from the Tenth Circuit, where this case emerged from. He was not involved in this case itself, but he has applied that very low Rowley standard in other cases involving complaints from students with disabilities. Is that a guide to what we would expect to see Gorsuch uh, well, that, do on the Supreme yeah, Court? I, I don't think so, uh, because once you're on the Supreme Court, you, your role is is different. When, when you're uh, on on a lower court, your job is to apply the law. 
And based on the research we have, it's pretty clear that lower court judges do tend to try to fairly apply Supreme Court precedent and not uh, change the precedent um, because uh, because of their own preferences or, or political opinions or ideology. So, you know, it could be that he would uh, like to leave well enough alone and see that standard re- remain in place, but we're on, we're in the Supreme Court. Uh, your, your job is a different one than, than that is, uh, of a lower court judge. Well, it doesn't sound like we should be surprised by any of a range of possible outcomes when we hear from the Supreme Court. When do you expect that we will hear from them? Well, uh, I, I could see this case dragging on into June, it being one of the cases that they really have a difficult time deciding. Uh, you know, many of the really controversial cases it, they are, are held until June for a decision simply because they're controversial and um, they're trying to iron out any differences that they have or keep a majority together. So that's a, that's a possibility. They just It's uh, so divisive and they can't come to any consensus on it that it takes a, a while for them to work it out, and then uh, then you get a decision decision in June. Of course, something could happen sooner. Occasionally, you'll have cases that are, as you had last year with the, uh, the case over the over labor unions in California, where the court realized that they were going to they, they they were going to be split four to four, and so they just uh, released an opinion saying that they're going to let the, the lower court decision stand. Um, so that could happen, too. If they realize very quickly that, look, this is uh, uh, inevitably going to be a tie, we're just going to, um, uh, you know, send out an opinion, letting the the, the, tenth, uh, uh, the tenth Circuit's decision stand and leaving it at that. Well, we'll wait to hear from the court, and I hope from you on the Ednext blog or maybe back on the podcast to let us know what happens next. Sure, yeah, I'll, I'll be providing an update whenever the court uh, announces a decision. Josh Dunn is an associate professor at the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs, and the Legal Beat columnist for Education Next. His column, Examining the Standards for Special Education, is available now at educationnext.org. Josh, thanks for taking time to join me today. Great to be here. You've been listening to the Ednext Podcast. If you like what you've heard, be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts so that you don't miss an episode. And if you're listening through iTunes, please leave us a review. It helps us find more listeners, and more listeners find us. Thank you for tuning in to Education Next's weekly podcast, released every Wednesday morning. For more on education reform, visit us online, educationnext.org.